Hello and welcome to Leanne Ward Nutrition, a podcast where you will find expert advice on all things health and nutrition related. Each week, we will discuss my three niche areas of gut health, emotional eating and sustainable fat loss. My hope for this podcast is to cut through the BS online and show you real, practical and evidence-based messages around nutrition so you can live your best life day in and day out. So sit tight, buckle up and let's get started on today's podcast. Welcome to today's podcast, everyone. We have an expert gut health dietitian on here today to share all of her knowledge with you. So Dr. Megan Rossi is a registered dietitian with a PhD in gut health from the University of Queensland here in Australia. Megan has a broad range of nutrition experience, having worked as a clinical dietitian, specialising in gut health and leading research at King's College in London, investigating nutrition-based therapies in gastrointestinal health, including pre- and probiotics, dietary fibres, the low FODMAP diet and food additives. Megan is also an associate lecturer at the University of Queensland and was the recipient of the 2017 British Medical Journal Open Gastroenterology Prize and the British Nutrition Foundation Award. Megan is passionate about the food industry and has worked with leading companies including Leon Restaurants on gut health initiatives across the UK and Europe. Megan also founded the Gut Health Clinic in London with a team of specialised gut health dietitians. She is a powerhouse and has also written her first book, The Gut Health Doctor, Eat Yourself Healthy, which is an easy to digest guide to health and happiness from the inside out. So make sure you guys go on over and follow Megan on her Instagram account. She's at The Gut Health Doctor, and I can't wait for you to hear today's podcast. So let's get to it. Welcome, Megan, to the podcast today. I'm super, super excited to have you on. Thank you for joining us. Leanne, it's an absolute pleasure. Now, I know that you're you're a busy girl at heart, aren't you? But you're in the UK at the moment. I am. I know. I don't even know how I ended up here. But um, yeah, it was meant to just, you know, be in, in London for about a year. And now it's been four years. I don't know where the time's gone. <laughs> That's amazing. Of all the places to go, I could definitely see myself in London one day. What made you uh, move overseas to begin with? Literally the love of the gut. <laughs> <laughs> so I, um, I finished my PhD looking at how we can improve gut health through nutrition. And then after my PhD, which I love so much, my mentor, um, Katrina Campbell, said to me, Megan, it's really good to go overseas for a year, get experience, and then come back. It's a really great way to, I guess, leverage your research career. So I was like, you know what? Why not? I didn't have any connections at the time. And I, I, you know, I actually never really had a desire to travel that much, which is quite odd. Um, But I was like, you know, I'll go for it. So I applied for a job at King's College in London and was really lucky to get a position there. So I moved over. And then, yeah, I guess I got sucked into this London bubble and, you know, so many amazing opportunities uh, have arisen over the past couple of years that have kept me here. Um, but I do, I do definitely miss, miss Brisbane a lot. It was, um, yeah, I think I was there for seven years. I was actually um, raised in Cairns oh, and then moved yeah. to Brizzy for uni. Well, you're doing a lot of fun days there. <laughs> yeah, and you're doing incredible things over over in London. I, I just love following you on social media. Can you tell our listeners what a typical day in the life of Megan looks like? What does a gut health researcher do from day to day? Well, it's actually really quite variable. So when I first moved over, I was 100 uh, percent full time research, which would mean you know anything from writing research grants to actually seeing. Um, participants in our clinical trials and delivering whether it was a probiotic or a certain type of dietary intervention and then looking how that improved mm-hmm. their gut health over a, you know a space of four weeks or so doing poop analysis so in the lab actually you know <laughs> preparing with um, some pretty smelly products etc and then and doing the micro analysis so looking at what bacteria changed in people's gut uh, following different diets um, but nowadays I am now down to three days of research a week. And then the other two days I have a clinical practice where I actually get to translate a lot of the research, seeing people with gut issues um, and those who actually just want to improve their overall gut health, which I really, really enjoy. And then I've moved more into food industry on my, my other day, which I am absolutely loving. And I think for me that's where I feel so passionate about because it's about translating the science as soon as possible because we look at the stats 
uh, it takes on average about 15 years from the research that we do in, in clinical trials mm. and in universities to actually translate into the food industry. So I'm really passionate about trying to, you know, fast track that translation. So, you know, everyone can start eating according to where the science is at. It is such a long time, isn't it? And I religiously watch your stories just to see if you've got any new little exciting tidbits that I can sort of pass on to my clients as well. Um, are there any exciting sort of new and up and coming um, gut research that you can let us in on today, perhaps? Yeah, so we've just received a really large grant, one of the biggest grants ever in um, people who have inflammatory bowel disease uh, to look at food additives. And, you know, we think that potentially some types of food additives may have a negative impact on people's gut health. Um, so we're mm -hmm. looking at people with inflammatory bowel disease as, you know, an extreme example. Um, but if that's shown to be negative, then it's likely that some of the food additives may also have a negative impact, you know, just on the general the general public's um, gut health. So mm -hmm. I think that's a really exciting and interesting area because traditionally all of the food additives that we are found in the food have been approved and have been cleared as being quite safe. But this was before our understanding of the fact that we all have trillions of microbes living in our gut, including mm -hmm. the bacteria. And we call this kind of like a new organ, our gut microbiota. So a lot of the food additives haven't really been tested on the gut microbes um, and therefore we're not sure exactly what, you know, what they're doing. And because we've realised that these microbes actually have such an important role in our overall health and happiness, it is important when we're looking at the safety of different ingredients to look at their effect on those bacteria because it's going to impact our overall um, health and happiness. So. Yeah, I think that's a, a really fascinating area. Another um, area which we actually just published on was looking at personalised nutrition. And I think, again, um, it's coming out in the headlines a lot more around how everyone's diets, you know, should be personalised according to their individual, you know, genetics as well as the bacteria living within them. And the research study that we did um, was in people with irritable bowel syndrome, which, as I'm sure you know, Leanne, affects so many of us. And mm -hmm. what we did, we looked at their poop sample. So um, before we changed anything in their diet, we took a poop sample. We then put them on uh, two different diets. One was a specific diet for people with IBS that we know is very beneficial in clinical practice, and that's a low FODMAP diet. Um, again, Leanne, I'm sure you use that in your practice all the time. And the other one was a probiotic. And what we found, using uh, the participants' baseline poop sample, we could actually predict who was going to respond to the low FODMAP diet or the probiotic intervention. So we're now um, applying for further research um, funding to look at validating this again in the new population. But essentially, hopefully in the next you know, five or so years, we'll be able to uh, do a poop test uh, with our patients and then recommend which dietary therapy they're most likely to respond to. Because things like the low FODMAP diet, incredibly restrictive, um, they're not mm. good to be done long term in anyone. So if we can minimise the amount of people that have to go on that diet uh, to those that we know are definitely going to respond, then I think that um, you know it's going to have so many benefits. Mm, it's such an exciting area of research, isn't it? And it's really in terms of um, testing our, um, I guess fecal samples and stool samples, we're just not quite there yet, are we, in terms of being able to personalise the nutrition. But as you mentioned, we do hope that someday soon in the future that we will be able to get there. Am I correct in saying that? Absolutely right, Leanne. Um, and it actually frustrates me a little bit when I um, see so many of my clients wasting large amounts of their money on these stool tests because they've been promised that it will uh, personalise you know, their dietary recommendations. So they come to me with these tests and say, look, can you interpret it? And I say to them, look, you know, this is really, really quite interesting stuff. You can see you've got this type of bacteria um, in large amounts and, and this type in small amounts, but actually that doesn't change my, you know, my clinical recommendations at all. Um, and one of the things that I think is important that people understand about these tests is that they really just analyze what bacteria you have in your gut. But what we're finding is that the exact same bacteria can act very different in two people's guts. Mm. It's really around the environment. And similarly, very different bacteria can actually do some of the same things, produce some of the same hormones and vitamins. 
So it's not necessarily just about a you know a good or bad types of bacteria in your gut. Many different types, um, you know, many different uh, you know collections of bacteria can actually be really quite good. So yeah, these these tests that are available commercially are certainly um, you know not not adding to our our advice as dietitians at the moment. Like you said, you know, in the next couple of years, I'm sure that they will. Um, but for now, it's more restricted to, I think, the research world where we're not just looking at what bacteria are there, we're looking at what sorts of chemicals the bacteria produce and also what types of genes the bacteria have, which is something that commercial companies aren't doing at the moment. Mm, fascinating stuff. I absolutely love just chatting through this and even just listening to you talk about it as well. <laughs> I think I'm such a nerd at heart. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, no, literally, it's just through my life. I um, I just love learning more and more about this because every week there is new papers mm. coming out around our gut microbes and how powerful they are. And I'm just, you know, it's great to see that something that I've seen literally transform the lives of thousands of my um, patients and clients over the years is actually now um, having that evidence base behind it. And we're understanding the mechanisms of how looking after your gut can improve things, not just gut symptoms, but things like your mental health, your heart health, et cetera. Mm. And you mentioned, um, you know, your gut bacteria is so powerful, but it's also so individualized as well, which is why we haven't, I guess, in terms of when I think about pr things like probiotics, the research is, it's really, it's kind of disappointing, to be honest, in some of the areas, because everybody just responds so differently to the probiotics, don't they? And it really comes back to just having um, such a diverse gut bacteria, doesn't it? Like how one individual is affected by a certain probiotic can be markedly different to how somebody else um, responds to that same probiotic. Is that right? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and I think one of the important messages is that if you're generally healthy, taking a random probiotic is is not going to be worth your money. It's not mm. going to do anything. Mm -hmm. There is a growing body of evidence around specific indications. Mm -hmm. and in fact, I like to think of probiotics kind of like a vitamin or even like a, a medication. Um, so if you have high blood pressure, you're not going to take a um, a, a medication for your cholesterol. Mm -hmm. You're going to take a medication for your high blood pressure. And the same goes with the probiotics. So one of the ways that I think we should start thinking about probiotics is similar to vitamins in that each different type of probiotic actually can do different things. So if you've got, you know, a vitamin B deficiency, you're not going to go and take a vitamin A supplement. And the same goes with these bacteria. For one example of that is there's really good evidence that if you have to take an antibiotic, uh, that you should also take a probiotic at the same time to reduce your risk of getting antibiotic-associated diarrhea. So really loose poops when you take antibiotics, which affects around 30% of us if we have to take an antibiotic. Now, it's really important that if you do take that a probiotic, you actually take a specific type. And one of the types which has got good evidence behind it is called Saccharomyces boulardii. Mm -hmm. Now, if you just take a random probiotic, you probably won't get that same benefit. Um, because the evidence shows that this type of uh, probiotic, the Saccharomyces boulardii, is able to really help prevent that antibiotic-associated diarrhea, while the other's probiotics don't seem to act in the same way. Um, so I'm not sure if that was a little bit of a confusing message there, but it's around finding out which indication, so what sorts of conditions there is good evidence for a probiotic and taking the specific type. And some of the areas um, that are coming out showing there is, you know, good evidence or some evidence for um, taking a probiotic is irritable bowel syndrome. Mm -hmm. um, also, there's just a, a new paper coming out suggesting that for people with severe mental health conditions, taking a specific type of probiotic may slightly improve people's um, depression levels. And um, ulcerative colitis is another area where there's a bit of research in terms of probiotics as well, isn't there? Yes, uh, for preventing relapses. And for that one, I think mm -hmm. most of the evidence is for VSL3, a type of yeah. uh, probiotic. So, yeah, it all comes down to treating it like vitamins. Don't just randomly pick anyone off the shelf. If you are going to invest money into a probiotic, then choose a specific one which has got the evidence behind it where um, you can yeah, generally get that information from your healthcare professional. Wonderful. Now, when we think about gut health, it is such a complex area, isn't it? And I'm sure a lot of our listeners have heard about this link between the gut-brain axis. Can you tell our listeners, um, I guess, in the most simplistic terms that you can, what is the gut-brain axis and how does it impact our overall health? 
Yeah, so our gut and our brain are constantly communicating. So every couple of seconds, they're, you know, chatting about what we've eaten, how we're feeling, etc. And a good example that I think most people can relate to is if, you know, you're really nervous, um, you start to feel it in your stomach, you kind of get butterflies. Um, so that there is a perfect example of that communication occurring. Um, and what we've started to realize is there's, what we've actually known about this gut-brain axis for, you know, for so long, uh, and that's because we've felt those butterflies when we are nervous. But there's a new, I guess, player in this gut-brain communication, and that's because we've understood around these gut bacteria uh, within the gut. And our gut bacteria thought to be able to actually communicate with our brain via three different mechanisms. And one of them is kind of, I like to think of it like a mobile phone, and that's where our vagus nerve, where our microbes can uh, zip up uh, by this kind of electric circuit up to our brain and lets the brain know what's happening in our gut. The second thing is kind of like an alarm system where if our microbes sense that there's something, you know, of danger, it can trigger our immune system, which it lays within our gut. In fact, 70% of our immune system lives along our nine meter long um, digestive system, i.e. our gut. Mm-hmm. And the microbes can um, trigger those immune cells to release inflammatory markers, which again can communicate with our brain. And then the third mechanism is kind of like snail mail. So kind of like the post where the microbes can actually produce chemicals which get into our blood system and then go up and pass the blood-brain barrier and, and communicate with some of our, our brain cells. So essentially there's those three different pathways um, that we are starting to understand uh, of how our microbes can actually communicate with our brain. Fascinating, isn't it? And we've learned a lot of this in just the last few years, haven't we? Yeah, literally in the last probably five, five years, it has just exploded. And one of the landmark studies, I think it was in 2013, um, was probably, yeah, the first one to convince a lot of skeptical scientists like myself (laughs) around this gut brain communication um, and that we could actually, you know, impact our brain via looking after our gut. And what they did is they randomized people, healthy participants, um, to getting a probiotic or a placebo intervention. So that placebo is just a fake intervention. So with the probiotic, that's a live bacteria. And what they did is they gave all the, the half the participants the probiotic for, I think it was four to six weeks, and the other half the placebo. And they got them to come in after the intervention, and they scanned their brain using an MRI machine while showing them negative images. And what they found, those who had the probiotic uh, intervention actually had a decrease in the activation, the part of their brain that's associated with emotions suggested and compared to the placebo group, suggesting that those who had the probiotic would actually be more resilient to negative emotions that they're exposed to. And, you know, from that research, there's been many other studies coming out showing the mechanism as well. So, yeah, it's a really powerful area. Mm. And while we're touching on, um, I guess, that area of, of research in the gut health, what where is the research in the science at in terms of mental health and gut health and mood? I know there's some great research coming out of, um, I think it's a food and mood centre here in Australia. Yeah, they're, they're certainly leading the way. In fact, end of 2017, they published one of my favourite studies still to date. Uh, and that study showed the power of, you know, a gut boosting diet, so to speak, in improving people's mental health. And what they actually did is they took people who had moderate to to severe depression and they put them on a really, really high-fibre diet. It was actually a Mediterranean-style diet. Um, So plenty of, you know, whole grains, nuts, seeds, legumes, fruit and veg. Uh, And that diet actually contained 50 grams of fibre a day. Now, you know, most of people in Australia, I think, are getting, you know, a on average 20 or less, I think the stats suggest, mm. and the government guidelines suggest we should be having 30, whereas this diet gave 50 grams. Mm-hmm. They gave so much fibre, and the really um, cool thing about dietary fibre is it essentially is food for our gut bacteria. So human cells actually, as you know, Leanne, don't contain the enzymes needed to break down dietary fibre. So essentially it gets malabsorbed by the high part of our intestine and gets the lower part of the intestine where the bacteria are. And that's where the bacteria start to ferment on that dietary fiber. So 
dietary fiber comes from all our plant-based foods. And I think we've, you know, for a long time known plant-based eating was quite healthy for us and because of the fiber, but we didn't really understand why. And now we know because the plant-based foods have all this fiber in it, which therefore essentially is feeding our gut bacteria. And they then can do so many things that are beneficial for our body, like regulate our metabolism, you know, send positive messages to our brain, et cetera. So that diet, super high in fiber, um, found that uh, after, I think it was a 12-week intervention compared to the placebo group. So I had a, a placebo group, which is kind of like a, a counseling therapy session, just to make sure that any benefit of the dietary intervention wasn't because the participants were seeing a dietitian, which can be quite therapeutic in itself, but because mm. of the actual food. Um, so then after the 12-week intervention, they found that those in the diet group I think it was 32% of them had a significant reduction in their depression levels that would have classified them as no longer clinically depressed, whereas in the placebo group, that was about 8%. So I think that just shows right there how powerful diet can be. Mm. Now, these people had, you know, moderate to severe depression. And I'm thinking, what about early stage depression where people haven't quite gone onto medications? Maybe if we just targeted mm -hmm. their diet, that would actually prevent it progressing. And I just, I think an important note with that study is all the participants did stay on their medication. So mm -hmm. if any of the listeners are um, on medications for mental health, I wouldn't say ever to stop your medications and just go diet. Um, it's more of an adjunct therapy if you're already on the medications or potentially early stage mental health, we can prevent um, going on to medication. So yeah, it's it's such a um, exciting area, I think, of the power of, of what we're eating and, and how we nurture this inner universe of microbes. Mm, I 100% agree. And it's really interesting that that study was purely just using food. You know, there's been a little bit of research around mental health and probiotics, hasn't there? But this is purely based on just a really high fiber diet, as you mentioned. Yeah. Um, did the study talk about anything to do with um, serotonin? Because I know that the majority of our serotonin, over 90% is made in our gut, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And we think that's one of the ways in which our microbes actually can communicate with our brain. It's kind of a new area. And this study, the SMILES trial, um, didn't actually measure the participants' poop samples, unfortunately. I think there's now other studies underway which will look at that. Mm -hmm. uh, but these ones the, these ones didn't. Um, so in terms of the mechanisms for that study, I think we'll have to wait and see. But it, it could be related to, um, yeah, the different pathways, including the serotonin production. Mm, definitely such an exciting time to be a dietitian, isn't it? No, it truly is. Um, it really is. Every day, new stuff is coming out. So I think one of the messages for you know our profession is to make sure that we're really up to date with this area because you know we want to make sure we're able to help people and lead the way in terms of gut health um, because there's a lot of misinformation out there. As with you know all sorts of trends, um, it can be taken the wrong way. And I think people can be misled into thinking they need to just take really expensive supplements and get really expensive tests done. Mm -hmm. When actually, if we go back to basics uh, with, you know, just whole fresh food, not restricting our, our food groups as well um, is, is probably going to be the best for our mental health and our gut health. Mm -hmm, definitely. And when we talk about a lot of um, these misconceptions and people being a little bit misled, particularly on social media, I really want to pick your brains around leaky gut. That's something that I get asked about all of the time. And the way that I sort of explain it to my, uh, I guess, clients is that it's not an actual diagnosis. It's not a condition. It's rather just um, a symptom of something else that's going on. But there's a lot of I'm going to say, for lack of a better word, alternative practitioners who are sort of diagnosing leaky gut as if it's an actual condition, they're testing for it, they're you know making their clients take really expensive supplements and that sort of thing. What are your feelings um, and what, what does the current research tell us around leaky gut? Yes, well, only Leanne. It certainly isn't considered a condition. It's more of a symptom of something else. But one of the uh, things we need to be aware of in terms of this you know, concept of leaky gut is that we all actually get a leaky gut. Um, you know, from time to time. If we're really stressed, we get a little bit more of a leaky gut. Um, after exercise, in fact, we also get more of a leaky gut. But of course, the benefits of exercise certainly outweigh uh, the effect of a short-term leaky gut. Other things, so if we have a really high-fat meal, uh, short-term after that, we get slightly more of a leaky gut. So it's not something we think we need to necessarily fear. Um, 
Now, one example of an extreme case of leaky gut when it is an issue is people who have celiac disease. So that's an autoimmune mm-hmm. condition to gluten. So they can't take, they can't eat foods that contain gluten. Now, if people have undiagnosed celiac disease and they're eating gluten, then their body um, starts to kind of attack itself, and that causes quite a significant and more of a long-term leaky gut. And that's where you know you can get. Um, a lot of, you know, really bad symptoms and, you know, whole body inflammation and things like that. But that's quite an extreme case. And what we see, as soon as those patients take the gluten out of their diet and have a very strict gluten-free diet, their gut heals up um, and they don't have that severe chronic Mm -hmm. leaky gut anymore. Definitely. So what would be your advice, say, for our listeners at home that they've seen a, you know, a health professional um, or an alternative practitioner or something like that, and they've sort of been diagnosed with this leaky gut, what would your advice be to them, do you think? Run? <laughs> no, no, that's <laughs> not fair. Um, I, I think it would be around just asking them what, what the evidence is. Is there any clinical trials, which means a human trial that have shown uh, that taking whatever supplement or however they've recommended to heal their leaky gut will actually, you know, benefit their symptoms. Um, so that's why I, yeah, ask the patients to just, whoever suggested that, ask for a human study because what, again, Leanne, you would know as, as a dietitian, we're very much evidence-based. So we like to recommend things where there's been human trials that have shown that benefit. And that really just takes a lot of the guesswork out of trialing, you know, thousands of different interventions we want to make sure that in a robust study it's shown to benefit you know a range of different people um, to take out that bias and therefore we can then say yes it will benefit or it's likely to benefit you rather than just plucking out one of thousands of different types of diets you could give someone um, so kind of narrowing down you know, the chances that the diet's going to benefit you. I love that. Um, Now, we've talked about the really important link between gut health and mental health and all of the fascinating upcoming research. What about uh, the new research in terms of weight loss and gut health? Is there anything um, new that you'd love to share with our listeners or um, just even a summary of where the the science is at with gut health and weight loss? Yeah, absolutely. So we know that um, people who eat more dietary fibre Remember, the fiber is food for the gut bacteria, so nurturing the gut bacteria, um, typically have a lower body weight. So we certainly see that there is a link there. And we've actually started to look, drill down more into the mechanisms and find that when the bacteria actually eats the dietary fiber, they produce different chemicals. And one type of chemical uh, is called short-chain fatty acids. So it's a group of these different chemicals. And these chemicals have been able to Um, trigger our gut lining to produce glucose, the blood sugar, which essentially tells our body that we're actually quite full and we don't need to keep eating. So it can help regulate our appetite. So that's one of the ways in which we think our our gut microbes can benefit um, our weight maintenance and and keeping a healthy body weight is by helping regulate our our appetite. when we think about actual, you know, more specific types of, you know, gut-focused interventions like probiotics, there was a, a review study. So these are called systematic reviews, not to get too sciencey, but essentially they just pull all the individual studies together and look at what the whole body of evidence says. So it's a really powerful mm-hmm. type of um, research study that we do. And what it showed is that taking a probiotic to lose weight resulted in a significant benefit but the change was only half a kilo. So if you spend, you know, whatever it is on probiotics, you've got the chance of losing half a kilo on average, which is really not that much given that most Mm. of our body weight fluctuates a couple of kilos a day. Um, So when it comes to probiotics, I certainly wouldn't recommend taking one um, to help with weight loss. There's also, Leanne, I'm not sure how much, how much you've heard of fecal transplants before. Yes, I used to work in the gastro clinic. <laughs> yes, yeah. I've heard a lot about them. <laughs> so a lot of people don't realise that these poop transplants, which is essentially taking poop from a healthy person and putting it into someone who's not so healthy, are actually done in all major hospitals for treating a really quite serious gut infection. And it has shown to be so beneficial. It's, you know, saved thousands of lives every year. Um, so these poop tram- transplants, we call them, um, are being explored for other conditions, for example, weight management. And the studies to date haven't actually been as um, as positive as we'd hoped. They 
firstly always trial things in animals and showed that actually these poop transplants look like they could help um, animals lose weight. So we tried to look at whether that would relate to humans. And unfortunately, it didn't look like it was as clear cut mm. um, when we did them, you know, transplanting the fecal sample, the poop sample from a, a lean person into someone who was overweight. Uh, it didn't help them lose weight in, in those studies. But um, yeah, I certainly think on a whole, looking after your, your gut health um, through that range of different plant-based foods. In fact, I always recommend people aim for 30 different plant-based foods a week, which you know can sound very intimidating, but it comes from all your plant-based food groups are things like your whole grain to nuts, seeds, veg, fruit, and simple things. For example, instead of you know just mixing one lot of seeds onto your breakfast or whatever, get the four seed mix and then you've got you know four points right away instead of always getting the um the red apples go the green apples as well. So just mixing it up um, can actually help increase the diversity of your gut bacteria, which is associated with, you know, better gut health. And hopefully that will link to, um, you know, more stable weight weight management. Mm, definitely. Variety really is key when it comes to our gut health, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Now, I'd really love to touch on the topic of um, women's health and gut health. Do you have any exciting research um, for our listeners today? Yeah, so this area hasn't received as much attention as I think other areas, um, but it certainly is mm. growing. And one of the interesting uh, findings is that our women have a vaginal microbiota. So like we have a gut microbiota, which is that organ which contains those trillions of microbes, including the bacteria, our vaginas actually also have different bacteria in it. Uh, and we're finding that looking after our vaginal health um, can actually also um, improve things like our risk of getting thrush. So there's been a number of studies which have actually shown a topical probiotic um, for people who have thrush alongside an antifungal medication can actually improve people's um, long-term outcomes in terms of preventing relapses. So we do think uh, that in terms of vaginal health, um, looking after it with bacteria, but we're not quite sure on how that impacts through our diet. I do, you know, generally in my clinical practice, see people who have better gut health seem to have, you know, less issues with things like thrush, um, but there isn't much research out there. And also in terms of our hormonal regulation, people who um, have better gut health, typically, again, this is just anecdotal evidence in my clinical practice, typically have less issues with all their hormonal regulation. But again, the evidence is um, is not quite there yet. Mm -hmm. So very sort of exciting. Watch this space. Good things hopefully to come. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Now, I'm not sure about you, but I love nothing more than a glass of Zav, maybe on a Friday or a Saturday night when I'm catching up with my friends. How do you feel about alcohol and the gut microbiome? Yeah, so this is a very common question. Um, <laughs> for people who have gut symptoms, uh, particularly those with IBS, so whether it's kind of altered stool, stomach pain, bloating, etc., we think that for some of them, alcohol can kind of aggravate their symptoms in a way. And the way it does that is that alcohol affects our gut movement. And mm -hmm. for people without these gut issues, that change in their gut movement, you know, it doesn't they don't really notice it. Maybe the next day they're still slightly softer, um, but it's no real big deal. Whereas if you have things like IBS, You've got quite a sensitive gut lining. So if you have, you know, large amounts of alcohol, that will change the movement of your gut and you can actually feel that. And that triggers up by your gut brain access to your brain and um, stimulates your pain receptors. Alcohol also in large amounts increases your gut leakiness in the short term. Um, so that's probably why one of the reasons why in the morning you don't feel overly well. But that being said, there is some evidence to show that people who enjoy, you know, a glass of red wine um, regularly actually have a slightly more diverse range of gut bacteria in them. Uh, and that particularly red wine has a range of different plant chemicals, um, particularly these things called polyphenols, which our gut bacteria actually love uh, to eat, similar to fire, but they love polyphenols. Uh, so we think that's probably why we see that association. So Overall, I think if you don't have gut symptoms, absolutely enjoying a glass or two of, of um, alcohol is completely fine. Um, but if you're having any more than that, you know, just try to be aware that it's probably not the best thing for your, your gut health. Definitely. And I love that. The gut health doctor has told me that I can have uh, happily enjoy my red wine <laughs> and 
well, we mentioned um, the polyphenols as well. They have great anti-inflammatory properties in them as well from the red wine as well, in moderation, of course. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the um, fascinating thing about polyphenols is that 90% of them is actually malabsorbed in our small intestine. Um, and they, so like fiber, they can't be absorbed. So they go to the lower part of our intestine where the bacteria are and the bacteria actually ferment them and uh, enable them to be absorbed and therefore have that benefit on our body. Uh, so without our gut microbes, we probably wouldn't see a lot of benefit from these polyphenols. Mm, again, so just a really healthy whole food diet, diversity of plants. It is really key to our health in general, isn't it? Yeah, certainly is. Mm. Now, I've got a, a bit of a personal question because this is something that I really struggle to give, uh, I guess, evidence to clients and to people that ask me, it's really around dairy and gut health. You know, you look at some studies and it says that, you know, dairy is quite inflammatory. You look at other studies, they say that dairy is quite protective. So I'm not really talking about lactose here. Yeah. Obviously, if somebody's got, um, you know, irritable bowel syndrome, they might be quite sensitive to or have a lactose intolerance. This is really around the, the research with just pure dairy, cow's milk protein and, um, and gut health. Have you got any sort of insights for our listeners or particularly for myself today? Yeah, yeah. Um, so where the evidence is currently at is dairy doesn't seem to be inflammatory uh, in people who don't have an allergy. So mm -hmm. there's obviously a small subset um, of people who have a dairy allergy, which means their body can't tolerate the protein, the milk mm -hmm. protein. So for those people, yes, excluding dairy in their diet um, is certainly going to help, help them overall. Um, whereas, yeah. For everyone else who doesn't have an allergy or an intolerance to milk, which is the vast majority of people, the all the studies have the majority of studies have suggested that it um, is fairly, I guess, neutral to our health, so to speak. Um, if people have things like weak bones, it's really beneficial because of its high amount of calcium. Um, but when it comes to fermented dairy, we actually start to see more of a positive benefit on our health. And we think that that might be related to the bacteria fermenting some of the proteins, the dairy proteins, and producing slightly different types of um, chemicals, which we think is thought to benefit our overall health and may have an anti-inflammatory benefit to some extent. Um, and that's why we see uh, associations with people who have fermented dairy in their diet actually have lower risk of things like diabetes um, and also a lower body weight. So fermented dairy, I think, is a great thing to include unless you're intolerant or have the allergy. Um, and, you know, me personally, I, you know, drink milk because it's convenient. I have it in my, um, in my coffee and my tea. Uh, but where I can, I usually have fermented, whether it's kefir in my, you know, my breakfast or um, yogurt as a snack and cheese. Definitely. Yes, I love cheese as well. <laughs> Gotta love some cheese with your red wine. <laughs> exactly. They just go hand in hand. They're so wonderful they together. <laughs> all right. Now, a question, again, I get asked all of the time. Now, we've talked about how wonderful um, these plant-based um, foods are for our diet. Now, beans, legumes, and bloating. Now, we know they are so good for us. I don't think there's any disputing that. But a lot of people, even those people who don't have IBS, a lot of people do um, sort of suffer from the side effects of the, you know, the increased bloating, the increased wind, and that sort of thing. Do you have any tips for our listeners in terms of enjoying beans, lentils, chickpeas, that sort of thing, without the sort of um, uncomfortable side effects that tend to go with them? Yeah, absolutely. This is a very, very common question. I get asked all the time as well. And what we see works the, be the best is starting with small amounts and working up because essentially we need to give our gut microbes time to adjust to the increased amount of food that we're you know, providing to them. And our body can actually recycle the gas that the bacteria produce. Uh, but it takes a bit a bit of time for our body to be able to, you know, learn those new skills, so to speak. So I recommend people who are struggling just starting off with a quarter of a cup of the legumes, so just quite a small amount, um, and you know maybe every month or so increasing it just a little bit, uh, rather than having you know half a can or a whole can and then going, oh my god, I'm never going to eat them again. Um, other things is actually. The canned uh, legumes seem to be less um, wind-promoting, and that's because a lot of those fermentable carbohydrates are actually um, drained out. So rinsing the canned legumes really well 
um, can also help with, um, yeah, reducing some of those side effects. Um, but again, there's another element of, you know, we need to start embracing that actually having a little bit of bloating, having a little bit of, you know, excess wind is not a bad thing. You know, obviously I don't want people to feel uncomfortable in social scenarios. Um, so if it's really bad, then yeah, I, I appreciate we need to cut down. But if it's just a little bit, um, you know, we all fart. It's something that we need to start embracing, I think, a little bit more. Definitely. It is just a natural part of life, isn't it? As much as we we want to, we don't want to admit that we all, we all pass wind, we all, you know, have a bowel motion. It is really just a, a natural and normal part of life. Yeah. One of the other areas <laughs> that there is a little bit of research for is taking a specific enzyme. Mm-hmm. So these are for people who more um, have very, very bad reactions in terms of the wind and and the bloating associated with legumes and um and really need to include quite a lot because they might be vegetarian or vegan and that's their main source of protein Mm -hmm. um and the the enzyme is uh, alpha galactosidase which is quite a mouthful Mm -hmm. but the product is called Beanio. uh and monash university actually did some study studies on this showing that taking um some of the Beanio at the start of a meal and then halfway through a legume meal um, can actually reduce some of the side effects in, in people who've got a very sensitive gut. But, you know, that, you know, sounds quite painful to have to actually take supplements. Um, so for the general uh, person, I would recommend just small amounts, rinse really well and working your way up. But there is that outlet from more of a clinical um, practice perspective. Mm, and I actually personally take them myself because I am particularly sensitive to um, things like beans and lentils and that sort of thing. And I just, um, I purchase them from iHerb you know, I think about 12 or $15 or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I actually find that really, really beneficial in terms of just allowing me to eat sure. um, or just have that, again, increased diversity in my diet rather than um, just not being able to really tolerate them at all. So I found that really helpful. Yeah, that's good. Um, now, when we talk about things like FODMAPs and IBS, um, I actually did a post on Instagram, I think just last night or the night before, about wonderful sources of prebiotics and the amount of people that commented on that post and messaged me and emailed me saying, you know, these are all, all products that give me symptoms and it's difficult to explain to people in a you know replying back to a comment on Instagram to sort of say that yes they give you symptoms but they're actually the most wonderful things for you long term and I I just I guess I'm worried because the majority of people sort of feel so good in a low FODMAP diet that they continue it for life and they're potentially doing more damage to their gut microbiome in the long term. So what is your recommendations, I guess, for people that, you know, they're so fearful of introducing these foods because they do get symptoms, but we know that you sort of just need to push through that barrier and sort of, I don't know, I guess, allow your your gut to adapt over time. Um, How do you feel about this? And do you feel like a lot of your clients or a lot of people that you see have been on a low FODMAP diet for, you know, many years now as well? Yeah, it's uh, it's such a tough area. And, you know, as with any kind of clinical diet there is always a risk of it coming a bit of a trend and being misused Mm. Uh, so the low format diet really should only be a very strict diet for four to six weeks and from that you would then go through this systematic reintroduction process which can take up to three months where we challenge the different FODMAPs and identify which ones you might be a little bit more sensitive to and also ways you can actually start to increase your tolerance to them. That's really important. And then you move on to more of that personalization stage where you might be slightly less FODMAPs than you were at the start, but you are working your way up. And what I find works um really well or is and so important if people want to have you know a long-term uh, symptom benefit and still be able to include these foods that used to give them triggers is actually working on their gut brain axis and a lot of people kind of go oh look I just want to I just want to focus on diet which I totally understand uh, because doing things like mindfulness can be a really tricky habit to get into but it's such a powerful one so in my clinical practice, I see the very best benefits when people combine both the diet and things like the mindfulness uh, and working on that gut-brain axis together. And then after that strict phase of restriction of the FODMAPs, they um, then seem to be able to increase the amount of FOD- FODMAPs they have compared to people who don't do things like the the mindfulness. And that's because the mindfulness really can, and we've shown through clinical trials, relax that gut-brain axis, which means that you can get more gas in your gut and you aren't as sensitive to it and it won't trigger up those symptoms. Um, 
So yeah, having the the both combinations of the mindfulness and the diet is really the way I see um, people getting the most benefit uh, long-term with managing their IBS and including that diverse range of foods. Because as you said, it's a very much a vicious cycle and all our clinical trials at King's, we've shown that the long term, the longer you do the low format diet, um, the you know the worse it is for your gut microbes in terms of reducing some of the beneficial microbes, which may actually have you know that vicious cycle because we know some of these beneficial microbes are really important for our mental health, and and so that vicious cycle can continue. Mm, and I love that you just inco- incorporated this, just this holistic approach as well, you know, the mindfulness and the lifestyle factors. And there's been some amazing research in terms of um, IBS and yoga as well, hasn't there, irrespective of, of doing any sort of dietary interventions? Yeah, absolutely. Again, I guess I personally didn't realize, I was a bit of a skeptical scientist. I didn't really believe in the power of this gut-brain axis and things like mindfulness and yoga as having systemic benefits until I saw the clinical trials. And with the yoga one, they um, randomized half the participants to a low FODMAP diet, which is that diet we know um, works quite well in the short term um, versus people who had had yoga. So it was kind of like a du- uh, gut-directed yoga therapy. Um, and what they found after the 12-week intervention, both groups, whether they got um, the diet or just yoga, where they didn't change their diet at all, actually had the both similar amounts of improvement. I think it was about 80% of them had, um, you know, a significant amount of a relief of their gut symptoms. So that just shows how powerful these, you know, holistic approaches are. And in fact, um, in my book that I, I've just written, I have a section on gut-directed yoga using the same protocol um, that they did in that clinical trial to help people, you know, do things at home that aren't just diet-related um, but are more of that holistic lifestyle so that they, you know, in the near future can start to increase more diversity in their diet and still have good management of their symptoms. Wonderful. Such a fascinating area, isn't it? Just incorporating all that holistic health as well, rather than just purely focusing on what we put in our mouth. Yeah, which can be easier to control for a lot of people. I get it. Mm. Um, I, you know, failed with things like mindfulness for so long. Um, but, you know, push through as, as making, you know, the, a daily habit and have literally seen so many benefits. And again, that's anecdotal. That's just my own personal life. But um, also from, you know, thousands of my clients. And now we've got the science to actually show that, yes, this is a legitimate thing. Definitely. So for anyone listening at home who, you know, wants to sort of try to start introducing some of these foods, but they're fearful of your symptoms, um, perhaps Try to incorporate some of these lifestyle factors, yoga, mindfulness, anything that will just decrease the amount of stress or anxiety in your life. Even things like journaling can be really helpful as well. Um, Now, Megan, you touched on your new book. Please tell me a little bit more about that. I'm so excited um, for its release date. Yeah, gosh, it's um, it feels yeah a bit surreal. Like I never thought, as a scientist, I would actually be writing a book. Maybe you know I've contributed to textbooks before, um, but not an actual book. So. Um, yeah, it, it certainly wasn't something I was expecting to do. Penguin actually approached me just through social media, um, i.e. the power of social media, perfect example of that. Um, and yeah, literally just based on all of the questions I've gotten over the last couple of years on social media about people asking about, you know, what gut health is, how to look after their gut. So I like to think of it as a bit of a guide to the gut. Um, so it's not just for people who have gut symptoms. I like to, you know, reinforce to people that everyone can benefit from looking after their gut. So we talk about, you know, so many different aspects in terms of what our gut microbes are actually doing for us, how we can improve our mental health via looking after our gut health, what sort of things we should eat, what does a, you know, gut healthy diet actually look like. It's got a range of different recipes in it. And then for people who do get gut symptoms, um, there's, you know, several chapters looking at how to manage uh, symptoms, whether it's just things like constipation or diarrhea or bloating. There's a number of different personalized pathways. I've got some flow diagrams in there for anyone who likes a personalized program. Um, and then things like IBS. So I show um, how to safely at home, people can combine uh, what I call a FODMAP light approach with things like the mindfulness and the gut-directed yoga therapies um, and de-stressing pathways and uh, sleep protocols. So there's a lot jam-packed in there. Um, 
And there's also assessment. So one of the questions I was constantly asked on social media is, how do you know if you've got a healthy gut? And there certainly is no one simple answer, but I've got uh, 10 different assessments, which I use in my clinical practice. And I kind of combine together, get an overall idea of, you know, where people's gut health, you know, potentially is at and therefore, you know, where we can start and how we can start to improve via, you know, very simple strategies over a a space of a couple of months. Fascinating. I absolutely cannot wait to read it. And I mean, I, I haven't read it, but I can highly, highly recommend it to all of our listeners at home, purely because I've just been following you for so many years and I know what an absolute expert you are in this area of oh. gut health. Congratulations. Thanks so much. Um, yeah, it's. I hope it really does uh, get the reach that I think the topic deserves because mm. it will dispel so many myths out there. And I think it will really help people have a healthier relationship with their gut, um, which in the end we see is is the key to long-term health and happiness if, if we nurture that rather than, you know, going on these restrictive diets and think we're doing good when actually maybe we're not doing as good as, as we hope we are. Wonderful. And when is the book set to uh, be released? The 19th of September. Ooh, very soon. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> two months to go. Ah! <laughs> Wonderful. Now, um, as we wait very patiently for your book, where can everybody else reach out to you, follow you, email you, get in touch with you? Yeah, so I'm at the Gut Health Doctor across social media, so Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And then my website is www.theguthealthdoctor.com, and it's got a range of different blogs and um, information on my clinic and how you can get in touch as well. Wonderful. Well, Megan, it has been an absolute treat to chat to you today. I even myself have learned so much, particularly around polyphenols and the malabsorption in our bodies. <laughs> um, <laughs> thank you so much for joining us. Um, I hope you have a lovely rest of the day. Thanks so much, Leanne. Uh, you know you know that I'm also a huge fan of what you're doing and spreading your message. So no, it's a pleasure to, to join you. Thank you so much. And I really can't wait to catch up with you when you come to Australia next. Yeah. See you soon. Thanks, Megan. I know you guys would have learned so much from that podcast as Megan is absolutely a powerhouse of knowledge. So if you guys would like to check out her book titled Eat Yourself Healthy, you can purchase it online or head on over to her Instagram account at the gut health doctor and you'll find the link in her bio as well. So as always, please take a screenshot of our podcast today and post it to your Instagram stories and tag myself and Megan and tell us one thing that you learned from today's podcast. We absolutely love it when you share it with us and also your tribe. And we also love resharing it on our stories as well, because the more people that hear about our podcast, the more we can spread great evidence-based nutrition messages out to the public. Thank you so much, guys. We'll see you in the next podcast.